Well, this is a special weekend, as you know. Um, this week we celebrate our independence as a country, and uh, we have been a, a very, very blessed people, as you know. Probably among the most blessed people on this earth, for which some people have paid the ultimate price, many. As we've said before, uh, on Memorial Day, freedom is not free. It costs an immense amount for the people who have gone before us to give us this good life that we enjoy in this land. And uh, we thank God for not just the independence we have as a country, but even greater, the independence we have, the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. For that, in fact, is one of the great themes of the Bible. It is the Apostle Paul who wrote this. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not go back into the bondage of the law because Christ has set you free. So we celebrate two things as we approach the 4th of July, both the freedom of our country as well as our freedom in Christ. And we have this freedom because of Jesus. This is the theme of the book of Ephesians, this letter that we're going through together as a congregation. Ephesians is about what it means to be as a group of people in Christ. In Christ means, that's the Bible's word for a Christian. It seldom uses the word Christian, but it uses the word that we're in Christ and Christ is in us. And I think today, again, we'll find a little bit more about that important subject. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your word that your Holy Spirit inspired many years ago but that your Holy Spirit, even this very day, wishes to teach us. It's about your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you, the triune God, would help us understand and apply it to our lives. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. One of the most common things that uh, we should know as human beings is that um, our bodies speak even when we don't say a word. We call it body language. And in fact, we are told by people who study such things that more is communicated by what we don't say than what we do say. Um, our body language tells people what our, our attitudes are. It tells many times what our thoughts are. It, just, it tells people about our personality. Um, we are told by those who study it that if you go into a room, body language will usually tell you who's the boss because we have certain body language if we're the leader or if we're the, the followers. And in fact, the way we uh, can use our bodies tells people whether or not they should follow us, whether, that, whether we're going to be someone who would be worthy of following. And you can see even in this picture here, very different kinds of body language as they prepare. It looks like going into an interview. One's bored, one wonders, one's eager beaver, ready to go. Um, by our body language in a group, we tell people whether we're going to work together with the other people or we're going to stay aside and fight them along the way. Our body language um, displays our emotions. Even if we say nothing at all, our body language gives us away. Now today, we're going to talk about body language, but in a different sense. Remember, this book, the book of Ephesians, or this letter, is about the body of Christ. And the body of Christ has a body language as well. You might not have noticed, but some of us who were alive in the 1960s, and there are a few of us here today, 
We know that, remember, there was a very well-known book circulated all over the America, Americas written by a Chinese man by the name of Watchman Nee. Remember it? Sit, walk, stand. Well, that's his commentary on the book of Ephesians because Ephesians is a book about body language. Sit, walk, stand. Now, actually, in the New Testament, there are basically seven different body languages that we, as a body of Christ, are, we communicate. So, stand up, please, with me. Let's try these out. Now, the first body language that we're going to learn today, but... Is, and this is the entry point for any Christian. This is the first body language of the body of Christ, is this. Okay, let's see. We bow. There's no way into God's kingdom apart from bowing. You don't walk straight into the kingdom of heaven. We bow, uh, we bow before our God. Why? Because we do not deserve salvation. It is a gift from God that we received humbly before him. So the first body posture of a Christian is actually a bow. But the second one is, it says, you have been raised up with Christ. So even if this is the first body language of a Christian, the next one is this. We are people who stand because Not because we have a right to stand in God's presence, but because we have been raised up by Christ. We've been, we're with Christ in the heavenlies. He is able to make us stand. So we're not people who lack confidence. Even though we enter the king, the, 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 His kingdom bowing, then we stand because He's raised us up. And then guess what we do next? We sit. You can sit down. <laughs> but not for long. You're coming up again. <laughs> Then it says, he says, not only has he raised us up with Christ, he has seated us. Where are we seated? In the heavenlies. We now, as Christians, part of our body language should be, we have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And where does Christ sit? He sits on a throne. Where do we sit? We're seated with Christ. Now, how many of you came in today and said, you know, I'm royalty. Yeah. I'm. How many of you are royalty? You aren't? Yes, we are. We're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Actually, I'm the only one that's not royalty in my family. I have a chart my, of, of tracing my family lineage through my wife to Charlemagne. So I, I'm the commoner in the family. They're all royalty. But... Doesn't matter. As Christians, we are seated with Christ. But you got to stand up again. Because the next one is, now that we are seated with Christ, then it says, and this is where we're going to turn next week to chapter 4, verse 1. Now that we have been raised with Christ, our calling now is to walk with Christ. So you got to take a few steps. Now we walk. That's the posture of a... And, and to walk means that, that we follow Jesus. We've been seated with Him. We've been raised by Him. We bow before Him, and now we walk with Him. Now the next one um, you can do if you want. This is where our text of Scripture says today. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees. So now he bows. He gets down on his knees. Yeah, I know you're having trouble with that one. You probably didn't have space. We don't have our kneelers here yet. Um, we bow our knees before the Father. 
And this is the posture, and, and this is Paul's posture of prayer. So now he's on his knees, but he's not going to stay on his knees. The next thing he's going to do, and don't do this one, please. He runs. <laughs> now some of you might want to run out the door. Uh, you might say, what in the world's going on? You might want to run. But the next thing, because it says, there's certain things you face in life, you need to flee. You need to run. But then the book of Ephesians is going to end by saying, we stand. As we, we, we approach this one, the evil one who wants to destroy our lives, we arm ourselves with the armor of God and we dig in our feet and we stand. We do not give up ground. We stand. So these are some of the postures of the book of Ephesians and the rest of the Bible. We bow and then we are raised up and then we sit and then we walk and then we kneel then we run or flee and then we stand and you may be seated so today we're going to look at some of the body language that the apostle paul is going to focus on so if you have a bibles our text of scripture today is chapter 3 of ephesians verses 14 to 21 and this again is a prayer remember we encountered a prayer back in chapter 1 and now we have another prayer of the apostle paul this is the last verses in the first half of the book of ephesians the book of ephesians is brilliantly written paul writes many of his books this way in fact the life of jesus fits this pattern the first thing that god always does is he tells us who we are how precious we are, what resources he has given us, the riches that are ours in Christ. I have been told if you study the three-year public ministry of Jesus, in the first one half of his public ministry, he only issues two commands, repent and follow me. That's it. He does not pour on all the stuff the disciples are supposed to do. That comes a bit later. But all he wants first is, I want you just to watch me. I want you guys to know who I think you are, how precious you are to me, how precious you are to God. And that's where the Bible begins. Oftentimes, that's not where we begin. I think it's our great problem. What we tend to do when a person becomes a Christian is you immediately say, okay, here are the rules. That's the worst thing you can do. Is that what you did to your baby the day they were born? You started to say, hey, here are the rules, kid. No, you didn't. You spent year and years just showing them who they are, how precious you are, connecting with them, how much you love them, feeding them, taking care of their needs. Even when they cry their heads off, you still love them. Why? Because you want them to know how precious they are. You want to give them resources. And then, as time goes on, you say, okay, now these are the rules. And that's how Ephesians is written. Not a, not a single command in the first three uh, chapters. Now, next week, they're going to come fast. But the commands arise out of who we are. Responsibilities come out of resources. God, first of all, says, this is who you are. This is what I've given you. Now, in light of that, this is how you should walk. This is how you should stand. But interestingly, what connects the sitting, the walking, and the standing? It's the praying. And that's where we turn today. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. We're going to start with Paul's prayer, and he's going to first of all tell us why we should pray. And this is what he said. This is verses um, 14 and 15. 
for this reason. Let's stop there. Remember, he does this all the time. Everything Paul writes is connected. Remember what he's just said in the previous chapter? He's talked about the fact that, that God is in the business of taking the barriers between Jews and Gentiles, which were incredibly high. They're thousands of miles high, and he dropped all these barriers in Christ. And then he did something mysterious. He told the Jews and the Gentiles in the body of Christ, where the Jews think they're so special and the Gentiles are, 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 are much, much lower, he said, no, 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 you're equal. You're equal in the body of Christ. There is no Jew or Gentile anymore. You're not, you're not different. You're part of the body of Christ. Now, that idea that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles has come down because of Christ and that you're equal now in the body of Christ is a revolutionary idea. We think of it, eh, what's the big deal? Well, back then it was incredibly revolutionary. How are you going to make this happen? Paul says, my only hope is to get on my knees. You see, there's no way you could convince Jews and Gentiles they needed to be in the same body on an equal status. There's no way. You're not going to pull that off. No one is. The only hope we have of that happening is that God would do it. And so Paul gets down on his knees. Now, people, Jewish people did not normally kneel when they prayed. We do. They did not. The normal posture for prayer for a Jewish person was standing with their hands. If you want to know how Jewish people prayed, have you ever watched Fiddler on the Roof? That's Jewish prayer. What's the deal? I mean, you, what would it take for you to have made me rich? This is no problem at all. Come on. I mean, that's how they prayed. They, they used their hands. They stood as they walked about, and that's how they talked to God. But you see, when someone was deeply, deeply troubled about something, or very, very earnest, they didn't stand and talk with their hands. They got down on their knees. And so Paul is saying, this is a big one, God. I don't see how in the world you're going to help these Ephesian believers to understand that Jews and Gentiles need to be in one church, not two churches. And they need to be on one level, not two levels. How has that ever happened? My only hope is that you, Heavenly Father, you who are the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth, Jew and Gentile is named, you are the Father in a sense of all humanity. You are certainly the Father of Christians. And you are even the, that special relationship because Jesus, it calls God the Father of Jesus. They have a perfect, intimate relationship. So he said, I, I bow my knee before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So that's the first thing he does, is he, he, he tells us that he is going to pray. Now, now, why does he pray? Well, he prays because he knows there are things he cannot accomplish on his own. And he prays that because the things that he needs, he wants to have accomplished are very, very important. And that there is somebody who can pull it off. What he wants is he wants the Jews and the Gentiles to be in one body together. But he can't do that. Only God can. Now, if, if you look for, at this next um, slide about the pictures, um, sit, walk, stand. 
and bow. Because the Apostle Paul knows that if we're going to do any of these right, we're going to have to do them on our knees. You see, the problem is, how many of us in this room here today actually believe that we are seated with Jesus in the heavenlies? Do you picture yourself on a throne in heaven with Jesus? Is that how you think every day? That's the thought that constantly goes through your mind. Isn't that right? Mine either. Hardly ever goes through my mind, except maybe Sunday morning when I'm preaching about it. It doesn't ever go through my mind. But it's true. How do you get somebody to realize we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies? And then walk. Now, in, in light of your calling as a beloved child of God, how do you, do you walk like the child of a king? Or do we walk, oh, what a miserable sinner I am. I blew it again. Say, no, I'm a child of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then we fall for temptation over and over again. And I was, no, you can stand. You arm yourself in the full armor of God. You can stand. You see, the trouble is we usually don't do any of those. How do we accomplish them? What's the means? Our knees. Paul knows that, and that's why he prays. In fact, many of our prayers is, Father, please. I Actually, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, I, I don't really picture myself as seated with Christ. Many times I do not walk in light of the calling to which I've been called. And I fall prey to the temptations of Satan all the time. Father, help me. Help me to sit. Help me to walk. Help me to stand. The next slide just shows us some of the, um, the different postures of prayer that you find in the Bible. You find sometimes people are not on their knees. They're flat on their face. Remember Jesus the Bible says that when he was in Gethsemane, he was flat out on his face. It was so grievous what he was about to do that the only posture that fit that situation was flat on his face in the dirt. Sometimes um, people um, uh, walk. Um, actually, that's my personal favorite um, uh, prayer posture. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes if I bow my head and close my eyes, I'm sorry, I fall asleep. <laughs> Am I the only one? Anyone else do that? Okay, but that's our normal prayer posture. We bow our heads and close our eyes and we go. <laughs> but when you walk, it's hard to bow your head and close your eyes, you know? But that's a very common way of praying. That's my favorite way as I walk. You talk to, you see, I love this yard, and everywhere I go, I see wildlife. I saw turkeys this morning on main, one of the main streets. I thought, what kind of town is this? You got, <laughs> I was going to say, you got so many turkeys in this town, <laughs> but I didn't mean it that way. I, I meant the real animal. And then I saw deer this morning. I thought, wow, this is a cool place. You see this beauty that God has made. You know, uh, sometimes... And sometimes that's the typical one is you, you pray to God this way. Oh, come on. You it's like, uh, I guess, Hebrews and the Italians are similar. You know, they always use their hands to pray. That's a, a common way to pray. There are many different ways. And all of them, 
God. Um, God loves. Um, in the next slide, Brittany, if you just show us, this is a, a quote from John R. W. Stott. He was the, the Anglican pastor of the Queen's Church, Queen, uh, the Queen of England right now. He's passed away now, but he wrote this. The basis of Paul's prayer was his knowledge of God's purpose. Now, remember what God's purpose is. God wants to tear down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles and convince us we're on the same level in Christ. He knew what God's purpose is. That's what God wanted. That's the will of God. He knew that. The indispensable prelude to all petition is the revelation of God's will. We have no authority to pray for anything which God has not revealed to us to be his will. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is why Bible reading and prayer should always go together. For it is in Scripture that God has disclosed His will. And it is in prayer that we ask Him to do it. Now the Apostle Paul knows what God's will is here. God has made His, his will perfectly clear. I want my body, the body of Jesus Christ, the visible representation of Jesus here on earth to not have these barriers, ethnic barriers and racial barriers and economic barriers and sociological barriers and any kind you want. I don't want barriers and I don't want people to put themselves into hierarchical categories because it will destroy the body of Christ. That's why I pray. That is God's will. And that's what God wants to accomplish. So when we pray, we can know that we're praying God's will. But now, that's why he prays. He prays because there's something he knows is God's will. It's something he cannot pull off himself. Only God could do it. And so now he's going to tell us what he's going to pray for. So these are his prayer requests. Now, they're easy to find here. If you have your Bible, you'll see them. All you need to do is look for the word that. He says, I'm going to pray that, and I'm going to pray that, and I'm going to pray that. So he's going to give us three. Here they are. Here's that number one. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that, now this is actually part of the first one, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So now he's going to say, um, out of God's riches, and those are inexhaustible, I, I'm going to pray that God, through the mediation of the Holy Spirit inside of you, will help Jesus to dwell in your hearts. What in the world does that mean? So here's his first prayer. Let's see what it says up there on the screens. Prayer number one. It's that. Let's see what's the next slide there, Brittany, if we can get it up there. Spirit-given strength to lay hold of the person of Jesus in our hearts. That's what it is. Now, what in the world is that? Um, I, how in tune are we with Jesus? Remember it says that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. And how does that transaction take place? That's the primary work of the Holy Spirit. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to help us as we live our lives here on this earth to recognize that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. That's his best work. That's his first prayer. 
Oh, I pray, Father, that they, that, that, the, that the Holy Spirit would help them to understand that they are in Christ and Christ is in them. That's his first that. Now here's the second that. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. <laughs> There's a big one. Um, we sing all the time about the love of Christ, but do we really believe it? I think the answer is no. We don't really understand the love of Christ. Can you imagine somebody who went through what we celebrated this morning on a cross simply because they loved us? He loved us. He, can, you, can you imagine leaving heaven to come down here and live on this dump? If, if you were in heaven and all you've ever known is perfect, is perfection, all you've ever known is perfect unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. All you've ever known is beauty and bliss. And then you get the assignment. You want to go to that dump with all those people who hate your guts and are going to kill you. And for 30 years of your life, you're going to live in total and, and complete obscurity. No one has a clue who you are, and you're going to have to live with that. And then once they find out who you are, they're going to falsely accuse you. They're going to betray you. They're going to deny you. They're going to kill you. You want the job? We would say, no. He said, yes. Yes, I'll take it. I love those creatures. They're the apple of my eye. I love them. I do it in a minute. I do it in a heartbeat. And he did. But we, we don't get it. And now his third, that. Here's the third thing he says, and he's going to pray that, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. <laughs> that one. Can you imagine? Uh, Paul prays, oh, I want them to be full, as full as you are, Heavenly Father. Good luck on that one. But remember what it says? Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Jesus' half-brother Jude said, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before God's glorious presence faultless with great joy. That's what the Bible says. So that's what he prays. Now, wow. Now he prays that we'd have the fullness of the Father. Now those are big prayer requests. Those are huge. If you look at the next um, picture, I, I found this. Um, it said this, I always thought love was shaped like a heart, but it's actually like a cross. I contend that one of the great problems of our culture is that we think love is shaped like a heart not like a cross. It's a horrible problem because love shaped like a heart is going to lead us to where we exist today as a culture. Follow your heart. It's going to lead us to the place where we think love is primarily an emotion, a sentiment, a quiver in your liver. 
a quiver in your heart in this case. Heart palpitations, I guess you could call it. No, that's not love. Love is, is primarily depicted by the cross. The difference is that, that when we think of love, we think of an emotion, but when the Bible speaks of love, it speaks of a choice. When, when we think of love, we think of um, a, a feeling, but when the Bible thinks of, a love, of love, it thinks of sacrifice. When we think of love, we think, well, what's in my best interest? But when the Bible talks about love, it says, what is in the best interest of the beloved? When we, in our culture today, we say, follow your heart, but as Christians, we say, follow the Lord. They're different. And I would contend that's one of the major problems of our culture, but who cares about the culture that much? I care about the church. The problem is we as the church think of love more as a heart than a cross. That's our problem. We should not expect our culture to see differently, but we should expect us to. Of course, because once you see love as a, as a cross, not a heart, you do understand feelings much deeper. So what does it mean when you stand, and I heard there was a magnificent wedding here yesterday with a packed house. And they promise to love each other as long as they both have the quiver in their liver. That won't last long. No, we promise to love. See, love is primarily commitment. It's volition. It's will. I choose to live my life in your best interest. I choose to sacrifice myself so that you can be whole, so that you can blossom, so that you can be all that God intended you to be. Now, here's the, a Bible verse. These are the words of the Apostle John. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, oh, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he who has given us this command, whoever loves God, must love his brother also. One of the ways that we know that we love God is that we love each other as well. Now, how do, how do you know? How do you know if somebody really loves you? How do you know? Well, one is they probably have, have expressed a commitment to you. And then you know people love you when you're going through a crisis and they're there to help you. And you really know someone loves you when you've done something really stupid and wrong and they don't abandon you. And you know someone loves you when they really enjoy spending time with you. And you know someone loves you when they tell you words of affirmation. And you know someone loves you when they sacrifice their well-being for your well-being. And you know someone loves you because they've proven trustworthy to you over time. And you know someone loves you when they've seen your absolute worst and they still hang in there with you. Ah, that is love. And that is the kind of love that God has expressed to us. Next sign, I love this, this little picture. Oh, or, well, this one says, you know, there are all these words that we say to ourselves, we're ashamed, worthless, abandoned, used, broken, abused. And I'll bet you if I knew the story and the stories in this room, many of you would say, this is the word that, that applies to me. I've been abused. I'm broken. I was I've been used. And these are true. But when God thinks of you, he doesn't use any of those words. His word is, you're beloved. 
And the great challenge of the Christian life is to stop hearing these words that are crossed out and to hear with clarity the word beloved. That's the key to the Christian life. Well, the last question, of course, you have to ask, oh, um, the, next, the next picture, Brittany, is God loves you this much. You know, how much do I love you? I love you this much. That's how much he loves us, the cross. Well, the last question is, if this, this prayer request is so big, is it possible God can pull it off? Well, let's see. Let's see if God can do it. Here's the one to whom we pray, and I think he has the ability to pull it off. Here it goes. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's how he ends the first half of this book. Now, the prayer request is huge. And uh, we are prone to fall. But here he says, can God do it? Well, look at the next, the next um, one. First of all, he is. He, God is not inactive. He's not dead. He's not some deistic God who's up there like a watchmaker, winding the watch and leaving it float out into the universe. He is not inactive and dead, and he is able. He is not idle. He is able to do. He is not impotent. He is able to do all that we ask or think. That means he is not deaf. He's not unconcerned. He is omniscient. He is able to do more than all we ask or think. He exceeds our expectations and he can do immeasurably more than anything we could ask or think. He is a God who has no limits at all. Remember David. David came to God and he said, Oh God, would you let me have the privilege of building a house for you? And God said, No. Oh. Do you know how God responded to that? So David, a house? What's a house? Your son will build the house. I'm going to build something far greater. I'm going to build. You're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house that will last not for a number of years before the Romans or someone else destroys it or the Babylonians. I'm going to build you a house that lasts for eternity. So here on the one hand, David's expectation was, I want a house to build in your name. God says, oh no, I'm going to build you a house. And your house is going to be the house that is going to give the world the Messiah. And that Messiah is going to give the world eternal life. David, your, your prayers are much, much too small. So why pray? Well, we pray because it's impossible for us to pull things off on our own. What do we pray for? Well, we pray for the strengthening from the Holy Spirit to know the love of Christ and thereby to grow into the fullness of God. And can he do it? Oh, yes. He is more than able. And so we have some Christian body language to end with, and here it goes. Number one, bow. The Bible says that we have to enter through a narrow gate, small gate, if any of you have been to the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, it's the place that marks the spot where Jesus apparently was born. And the door is about this high. 
You can't get in the room, into that church, without going like this. It's symbolic of how we enter the kingdom of heaven. We bow it by entering through a narrow gate. We bow. And then we don't stay down. We rise up. Because the next sentence is, God has raised us up with Christ. And he has now seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And then we walk. We walk is the next slide. Well, there, we're seated. There's, there's our place. There's our throne. I see it up there. There we are. And then we walk. It says, um, we walk with God. That's, that's the calling of us as Christians. But in order to make all of that take place, we've got to kneel because um, we, we don't get it for the most part. But then one of our tasks, part of our body language is to flee. We run from sin. But what we don't do is we don't cave under the temptations of the evil one. We stand because we are covered in the armor of Christ. So we stand. That's the last thing we do. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And so we have seven postures. First of all, we... And then... Rise up. And then... Oh, you cheating. There they are. Sit and walk and kneel and flee and stand. Would you please stand with me? I thought an appropriate way for us to conclude this service today is by singing. And I think you'll know the song. Sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And now may you go, and may that simple song become true in our lives this week. God bless you.